Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. I am so excited to share this week's interview with you. Rob Stye, my friend from HDR, has joined us today to talk about the connection between technology and transportation. Rob is the global director of the technology studio for HDR, and in that capacity, he really focuses on mission-critical facilities. Mission-critical meaning those facilities that are vital to the continuation of vital services, of communication, um, of emergency response, things of that nature. And he helps us understand the importance of data and how data is being used and collected in very different ways across different communities to help us more safely and efficiently get from point A to point B, how it is helping to improve pedestrian environments, how it makes our lives easier, or in some cases with over-dependency can make it a little bit more difficult. He also helps us explore things like what are the implications of data collection on things like the gas tax and the future of vehicle miles traveled and who owns that data. It's a fascinating conversation with my good friend and I cannot wait to share it with you. So without further ado, let's talk to Rob. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us on Moving to Arizona. It's awesome to have you here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Looking forward to it. It's pretty cool. One of the things I always talk to people about is how the transportation industry is so vast with regard to the types of disciplines and just areas, whether it's communications, it's graphic design, it's technology, it's vehicles and planning and financials and engineering and environmental. And you represent a very interesting part of the transportation industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do for HDR? Sure, sure. So I'm, I am the global director of our technology sector. And what that is, right? Because everyone's asking, okay, great. What's the technology sector? <clears throat> we design buildings that deal with uh, the data center industry, aerospace industry, and advanced manufacturing, microelectronics. So I affectionately call it any building that has a high nerd factor we're usually involved, right? And my expertise for the last 15 years or so has been data centers and and mission-critical facilities. So a a mission-critical facility is a building that if it goes down, bad things happen, right? So there's a lot of redundant power systems and cooling systems and, and things like that. But where that ties into transportation is just, you, you look at where the industry has gone, even over the last 10 years, and how we have integrated the Internet of Things, devices, applications, and, and you name it, into our transportation lines. And then how does all that data get processed, right? When, uh, when you pull up an app, 
and you want to look at traffic patterns, right? Or how, how long is it going to take me to get from point A to point B? All those data points come in from sensors somewhere out in our smart cities. They get processed at a data center, and then they go back to your phone, which is one of those, when, when people say the internet of things, your phone is a thing, right? Your Apple Watch, your car, right? Your car is now a thing. Okay. I didn't realize that. Can you talk a little bit more about the Internet of Things? And I have several other questions about the mission-critical facilities. Sure. So so I'll kind of back up a a little bit. So my my grandfather was a civil engineer and a highway traffic engineer for Cook County in, in Chicago. And he, back in the 1950s, designed probably a section of every federal highway that's actually within Cook County, Illinois. And I've got a uh, old picture of him. I think it's 1957. And he's got a, it's him and a bunch of other engineers standing around this computer that's literally as big as like my daughter's bed, right? And it's huge. And I saw that and I said, you know, hey, grandpa, and this wasn't that long ago. And I said, grandpa, what, um, what is this thing doing calculations for? And he said, oh, well, this, this figured out the uh, coefficient of friction for the roadways and turn radius and things like that. And I said, you know, Grandpa, there's an app on the phone that will do all this. And he, he kind of chuckled and he, he laughed at me. But um, he said, uh, yeah, all right, smart guy. Do you, you, know, do you even know how to use a slide rule? And I said, no. And he made fun of you know, my lack of engineering talent for uh, not being able to use a, use a slide rule. So generational uh, differences. But, you know, as, as transportation has evolved, right? From just kind of everyone having a car or jumping on a bus to get to point A, from point A to point B, it's become just a huge integral portion of our lives and, and our business functions. And I think we're, we're even kind of seeing the impact now with COVID and not as many people are, are traveling, right? The airline industry is um, obviously taking a hit, um, but we're supplementing it through other technologies like, you know, Zoom meeting. So technology in itself is one of those things that spreads out through aspects of, of all of our lives, right? We, we can't do anything without, without touching technology and transportation is, is a huge aspect of that. When it comes to, I would say, transportation, most people think of driverless cars, right? And they, and they say, oh, smart technology, the autonomous vehicle. And that's really just kind of one, one aspect of it. I said before, your, your car is a thing, right? Well, just because it's a thing doesn't mean it, it has to operate by itself. Right. You look at car technology today, you know, my 2017 Jeep Cherokee, has a lot more technology than the 2005 Nissan Xterra that I had, right? I, I got rid of the, of the, uh, the CD uh, player, and now I have Sirius XM and a, and a graphic display and, and you know, navigation and all these things connect these sensors within, within the world that process data somewhere. And if I was going to say one, uh, one overarching aspect is it's, it's all about the data right? What we do with it, how we collect it, who owns it, right? There's a lot of, of interesting uh, conversations right now. Who owns your, your personal data is you know, where you go, but it's once someone has the data, what can be used for? And all of those kind of weave into transportation and, and technology. So one of the things I'm wondering, and something that would be potentially mission critical, would be our traffic operations centers or our emergency response centers that 
from when you are coordinating across multiple jurisdictions, you'd have maybe county, city, state, and then maybe even federal response that would all have to tie in together. Is that an example of something that would be like a mission critical facility? And then if you were planning or designing something like that, what kind of components would you be looking at including to ensure that there was this continuity of service, if you will. Yeah, you're exactly right. 911 call centers, operation centers, those are all mission critical components and buildings. And what happens is if there's not a central management point or or collection point for those services, there ends up being chaos, right? And, you know, police, fire, repair vehicles can't get to where they need to, to go. So, even though they're not necessarily data centers, they are examples of mission critical facilities. And so to keep something up and running, we, in the mission critical or data center industry, we refer to that as uptime, right? And uptime, it can be defined as how many hours per year the building is operating or just kind of the, um, the time between failures and, and shutdown, right? So for a building that would be considered mission critical, we usually design things in what we refer to as um, blocks of N, right? So what what's N? N is a component, like a generator, a cooling system, a electrical pathway, a piping, cooling piping pathway, that if something goes wrong with that and, and it goes down, that service from building side can't be completed. So we'll do redundant levels of N. So you'll you'll hear terms like N plus one, right? So if I need N generators to keep a building up and running, right? I'll put one more in there and that allows one of these generators to go down either for general maintenance or something breaks on it. I can keep the facility up and running. Now, depending on your risk tolerance for a building owner, there's different levels of, of N, right? So you can do N plus one, or you could do 2N, which means if I need three generators to run that building, I'm actually going to put in six generators. So I could lose the entire bank of generators and have a whole nother backup system able to run this thing and keep moving. Now, there comes a capital cost with that, right? I mean, as you mentioned, you're, you're buying twice as many generators. So it comes down to a, a risk versus reward, if you will, right? So what what's the impact if you're building goes down. Now, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, if, if you want to relate it to transportation, 2016, both Southwest Airlines and Delta had interruptions in their data centers. So their data centers went down. And my family and I were actually uh, flying back from Chicago to Phoenix when, and we we're on Southwest when all this went down. My dog handled the delay like a, like a champ, right? She was two at the time and, and thank God for iPads and Disney videos. But what happened was when the data center for Southwest Airlines went down, that meant flight operations were interrupted. People couldn't jump on their apps and actually change flights, right, and reroute. So everything had to go back to doing things in a manual fashion. So the poor um, flight attendants and aid agents were there picking up phones, trying to get people reroute on flights. Delta Airlines had something similar about a month later that interrupted their operations globally. That cost them about $120 million in just wow. that interruption because everything's connected. So, you know, before COVID, right, and we were all traveling, I actually did quite a bit of travel. And I, I thought about it in preparation for, for this call. I said, okay, when I go on a business trip, 
I check in to the airline on, on my phone on an app. I order Uber, right? That takes me to the airport. I'm walking through. I'm using my app to go through security and and get there at the at the gate. Um, I'm checking the weather patterns. I'm is, is my flight delayed? Do I need to change a flight? You know the hotel across the you know whatever destination city I'm going to. Do I check into the hotel? Do I get an Uber? So all these things from a transportation standpoint feed back to an app, right? That I use on my phone, which is. Again, you know, the internet of things, right? My phone's a thing. My Apple Watch is a thing. And all that data gets processed back at a data center. So, you know, data center, uh, like, you know, big building with lots of computers, lots of power, lots of, lots of cooling, for lack of a better term. And, uh, it, those are, are definitely mission critical. So if I, if I can't use any one of those services, because like in the, the airline example, that building went down, my travel day is really messed up. So, and it costs a lot of money. I recall being in Seattle in 2016 when the Southwest Airlines data breach occurred and we weren't able to, I was a preferred traveler and I wasn't able to get a hold of anybody. And thankfully I was able to go up to, I think it was United or one of the other airlines and they had a flight leaving in an hour. I just bought the ticket ended up not being outrageous for a last minute flight, but, you know, I was able to get home. And then of course, Southwest was great about not only refunding everybody for their travel and, but then also, you know, they gave us free flights or whatever for the inconvenience that had to be costly. Even just the recovery of the consumer confidence after something like that. Yeah. I've heard, right. And I've read that that was actually one of the most costly data center outages in the industry, right? And people usually think, you know, if a, if a data center goes down, maybe we can't access Facebook. But if, if you think of uh, banks and financial institutions, yeah, if, if that goes down, you know, how many millions of dollars a minute in credit card transactions don't get processed? Or if you are um, running a hospital and their data center goes down, and someone's trying to get uh, medical records right on the fly because fly, there's an emergency, right? You know, there could be lives at stake. So we've got this reliance on technology in, in all aspects of our lives to the point where if it's interrupted, there's serious consequences, yeah. right? So there's this infrastructure that's being built in a fashion to make sure that it doesn't go down, you know, or at least if, if certain portions go down, it can be covered by another data center within an adjacent region and can be back up and operating at, you know, within short amount of time or, or not even notice the interruption. You know, for something like the outage with the airlines, how would you recover that? What kind of measures would you put into place or recommend as someone who designs those types of facilities? What would you recommend to prevent that kind of thing from happening for them in the future? I mean, and I realize technology is always changing. So it's not like you can say one thing today and then six months from now, there could be some sort of new development that would require a different solution. But just in general, what would you say? Well, and that, that's part of the challenge is that technology changes, you know, on a regular basis. And the, the buildings and facilities that we design typically have a 20, 30 year, sometimes even longer lifespan, right? So you have to design systems in a, what I call generic flexibility. So the, the mechanical, the cooling, the, um, even the architecture and the space within the building 
actually can respond to those changes in, in technology and you're not spending a ton of capital resources and, and expense to revamp them and, and redo them. What has happened over the last 10 years is I think the industry has gotten smarter in that it's looking at redundancy, reliability, kind of risk aversion, not by necessarily building one data center that is this brick fortress of, you know, that will never go down, but building multiple data centers that kind of cross over to each other. So you've got these availability zones. Interesting. Yeah. So we, we've kind of moved away even from just a single, what we call disaster recovery center. So a, a bank in California may have a data center that's, you know, main data center that they do all their stuff in. And then they've got a disaster recovery data center somewhere in another geographic region. So if it's in Southern California, obviously they're, they're prone to earthquakes and, and things like that. You would not have your disaster recovery data center in the same city. You would have it in, say, Phoenix, Arizona, right? Mm, yeah. And periodically, you, you do a, a backup of all the data. So if, if something happened, then you can transfer over. They've taken that thought and really kind of put it in a more distributed layout. So you've got multiple data centers that will provide that same level of of coverage. And then the benefit to that, too, besides just having this overlaying level of redundancy, you start talking about latency. And latency is really kind of the measurement of what's the loss of time in milliseconds between when data is processed to the, the point of use. And to us, milliseconds seems pretty small, but in the data processing world, milliseconds is a big thing. So if you're a stock trader on the Chicago Board of Options, if you're trying to hit a certain price point or sell or buy stock, any amount of latency when it comes to computer trading could have huge financial impacts. So they're trying to design the the fiber systems, the IT system to minimize latency. But then also, as you can imagine, stock exchange, that's something that if it goes down, the financial impact is huge. Billions of, of dollars could be lost with an interruption. So as an engineer, you know, we, we design these systems, we measure risk and reward against what our clients are, are willing to accept or what they want, balance against uh, capital cost, total cost of operation. But this is also where, as an engineer, every once in a while, you wake up in the middle of the night sweating, thinking, did, did I remember every aspect? <laughs> did, I, did I cross every... T dot every I, did I put a valve in the right spot? Did I sign the automatic transfer switch correctly to make sure all these things happen? But you know, what's good is any data center goes through a heavy commissioning process. So we, you know, we design it, the contractor builds it, and then we bring in a third party to run it and test it and run through the failure modes and, and really beat things up before you put it into operation. So there's a pretty robust process into getting from a concept on paper to when the client is actually using it and operating it, making sure it doesn't go down. So switching gears a little bit, can you talk a little bit about smart cities? I know that's something that is quite the topic within the transportation industry. And, you know, you were mentioning earlier data and collecting data and who does who does your data really belong to? And there have been some scenarios I've heard recently where private organizations, private companies, investors, if you will, are willing to invest in infrastructure 
poor communities so that that data can be collected, then those private investor firms take that data and they sell it. And that's where they make their money. That's where they make their profit. So you think about the cost of infrastructure. And in some cases, it's maybe just something that sits on top of a light pole. In other cases, it could be different types of instruments that collect the data. But can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a smart city and then that data and how it's collected and and some of the discussion that's happening in industry around that? Sure. The driver for any municipality to be a smart city is usually, there's a couple of things, you know, we want efficiency. I think from a social aspect, we recognize that there's efficiency to be gained with good operations and that leads into a whole impact on the climate and what we can do to kind of help save the planet, if you will, right? So if a city really wants to go into being a smart city or, or a connected city, there's a lot of sensors that get put in and the city has to decide what investment they want to make. It's usually traffic signals, it's light signals, kind of those basic types of things. But it could eventually morph into transportation. So you've got automated buses and, and other passenger movement. And does that turn into a, an example of the city's going to invest in a fleet of vehicles that move people around, you know, different, different spots and follow a, a fixed path versus the cost to invest in technology that buses can do a, or vehicles could do a dynamic path and kind of go off or out and do whatever they want. That technology is available, but it's usually pretty pretty expensive and, and cost prohibitive. But by doing that, now you can take, theoretically, right, you can take more cars off the road and our infrastructure is not stressed as much because we've pulled cars off the road. There's socioeconomic benefits of lack of pollution, even things like parking requirements. If less people are driving, do we need to have as much blacktop and asphalt for parking structures? Or should some of that, in a perfect world, could some of that be repurposed to house autonomous fleet vehicles and you've got charging stations or could some of it be turned into, into green space and better pedestrian space? So that's kind of the, the goal. Another aspect is safety. So if there's kind of this controlled movement of vehicles and crosswalks and pedestrian awareness, do you increase safety? And there's less, you know, there's fewer accidents, which is obviously a good thing. I think the industry right now, from that aspect, any autonomous vehicles or automated vehicles are going to be a little overcautious, as they should, right? You don't necessarily want the vehicle to make a choice. Do you run to the light pole or do you run to the pedestrian? That's something we struggle with. Not that you want to hit the pedestrian, but from an ethics standpoint, who makes that decision? Is it the vehicle? Is it the, the driver? And who's taking that responsibility? So I think that's part of the challenge in autonomous vehicles. But the smart city aspect involves infrastructure, which usually means tax dollars. So there has to be this benefit. So if I'm a consumer, taxpayers are consumers. We give the municipalities money. And then there's the concept of economic utility. And that economic utility is I have a choice or a preference as to where my money goes. So... Do I, as a consumer, think it's a good idea to develop in, in the smart technology? And do I want my city officials to do it? And I think that you're starting to see more and more people say, hey, I think there's a benefit to this. I like the reduction in pollution. I like the reduction in traffic. And I'm willing to jump in a vehicle that it's got a fixed route. It's automated, but it's got a fixed route. 
And maybe there's a little bit of inconvenience because the vehicle doesn't go as fast as maybe I would when I'm driving. So I got to plan my trip out a little bit better because the Ame vehicle, it's not going to run the yellow light. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stop because of safety concerns. So I'm going to put up with a, a little bit of loss of time for these other socio and economic benefits. So isn't part of the data talking about trip planning, isn't part of the data that is collected, isn't part of that feed Google Maps and, you know, sometimes you're routed one direction versus another direction because there's a traffic accident or there's some major activity going on or congestion or something. Doesn't the data get back to like an app? Yeah, it does. So the data points are collected, they're processed, and then based on that, it's used to help you or help the car or whatever is using the data to make a decision that benefits the user of that device. So like you said, if there's an accident on the 101 and I know that before I leave the house, I'm going to reroute and go somewhere else versus showing up on the 101 and also you're stuck and you're, you're sitting there for 20 minutes. But from a data collection standpoint, this is really where the discussion about data privacy lies. So I think most people would agree that, and this is just my opinion, most people would agree that, yeah, go ahead and use my data as I'm traveling down the road because I I want a better travel experience. So if, if there's an accident, I'm okay for Google or whoever else it is to use my data to inform me to make a different decision. But when it comes down to if someone collected data because I went and I parked at, at Target and I was there for 20 minutes and then I went to a restaurant next door. I was parked there and, and here's all this data and I use Apple Pay or, or whatever it is. Now, if, if there's a third party coming in, like you mentioned, to collect that data, use it, and then also ads just start popping up on my phone, you know, uh, hey, here, here's a 5% you know, off coupon at Target. And I know you shop at Target because your car was parked there for 30 minutes. That's where people are starting to get a little touchy, I would say, about data usage. So that's a whole nother round of beers. <laughs> that's, that's a discussion. And, and there's a lot, a lot of discussion with that. Or even the, um, like a Facebook, you know, you'll, you'll see some Facebook says, oh, so-and-so checked in at X location. Well, yeah. I didn't. I, I didn't give Facebook permission to tell the world that I checked in at, you know, uh, whatever sports bar just because I wanted to see my buddies and, and have a beer real, real quick before, you know, before I headed out. The good news is a lot of those apps do, you know, you can go on your phone, you can you can turn off the, the location device and Facebook and a number of other companies will, you can actually go to their site and they'll show you how to disable that function on your phone. So it, it brings up an interesting point. Isn't another kind of a, a hot topic because of the situation with gas tax about the vehicle VMT, so vehicle miles traveled or vehicle user tax? Oh. A lot of people think it's Big Brother is keeping track of where their car goes and, and the how actual usage. And if you are taxed based on how much you drive versus how much gas you consume, it levels things yeah. out because if you drive more, even if you're an electric vehicle, you're actually causing more wear and tear on a facility, whether that facility is a, a city street, arterial or, or freeway or interstate. But yeah. a lot of people don't want that information to be collected and given to the government. 
Yeah, that is the ongoing debate. And I, I suppose it, it, it kind of depends on what which side of the fence you're in, right? So if I'm outside of COVID, right, if you're someone that, that works works at home and you're not traveling as much, then maybe you say, hey, listen, why, why should I be taxed as much as someone who is in local business development sales and they're driving around, you know, they're putting 100 miles a day on their car. Why am I paying as much tax as them? Or you could be on the other side of the fence and say, hey, listen, we all pay the same tax, but more importantly, why does the government care where I go, what I do? And really, it's none of their business. Yeah. How granular can that be? It's not just yeah. a number at the end of a year or a quarter or whatever. If you can collect that, yeah. you can actually collect where someone is. And then is that an invasion of privacy? Yeah. There's going to be a lot more discussion. And I know um, over in Europe, they've already started enacting privacy laws and use of data laws. And it, it's it's going to be interesting to see where, where that goes. I, I really don't have a... Um, that finger in the pulse as to, from a legal standpoint, what, what's going to happen with our data. I have that magic eight ball to shake up and give me an answer real quick. <laughs> no, no, but I think, it, you know, maybe after, um, usually after about two or three bourbons, I become very insightful. And I, <laughs> we'll you know, circle I, I back voice, after I, you have I, some bourbons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, I'll, I'll voice, voice an opinion here and there. But, you know, really, it, it kind of reinforces the point that it's all about the data. And data can be used in a way that benefits all of us. It can, can be used in a way that benefits just a certain portion, like, you know, corporations or, or other entities that want to know what you're doing. It comes back to, you know, who owns it, who has the right to it, what they can do with it. And like you said, there, there's a certain amount of data that collection that, that I think is, is beneficial. We talked about the, you know, can you avoid an accident? and reroute direction and save time. To me, that, that's beneficial collection of data. But as long as it's not necessarily sold to, to someone, but if it's used to adjust traffic patterns, is it used to adjust uh, streetlights and, and flow of traffic to make a more efficient experience? You know, that's, that's the beneficial portion of this. So, Interesting. So... How does one become a global technology person for a company like HDR? That's a great question. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Uh, every <laughs> once in a while, I look in the mirror and I say, how did I get here? So I guess going back to school and growing up, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Just kind of wired that way. I had a lot of family influence from my mom's side. And my, my dad, actually, he was not an engineer. He was business and operations and things. So, and he worked in the, uh, the food industry. And my, my very first job internship in college was working on ammonia refrigeration cooling systems for big food plants. And my dad worked for Pillsbury, Michael's Foods, and things like that. So it was one big practical application of thermodynamics, which I love. And you knew I was going to weave that into the conversation somehow. <laughs> it is not possible to have a conversation with you without you weaving in thermodynamics somehow. This yeah, is your, that's... your true love in life is thermodynamics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the problem with the food industry is typically you're living in places like you know rural Nebraska, rural, rural Iowa, and that just wasn't me. I went to school in downtown Chicago. Love the city and um, uh, love the construction industry. And I, I didn't want to sit somewhere and be an R&D engineer. So got into the construction industry, started out actually doing work with HVAC systems for the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And 
that kind of opened my eyes to uh, what we call critical environments. So where temperature and uh, humidity and things like that are, are very important to maintaining historical artifacts, you know, like picture the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. So that in then turn started to lean towards other things like data centers and, and how do you maintain the, the proper environment there. And I had two paths in my career. I could go off and try to be the best technical engineer that I could be. Or I could be pretty good technical engineer, but then there's also project management and business development and sales and, and things like that. And the company I worked for at the time had some really good technical engineers, but they had fewer people who could go out and actually win the work, do the client interface, be the project management leader. And I said, you know what, let me do that. And I had a couple of mentors in, in my career that kind of guided me down that path. And then as Phoenix and, and the world started to kind of grow in data center infrastructure, right? There's been this big, big push over the last few years and everyone's doing everything online and the data industry has grown. There's a huge need for people that can go out and not only engage clients, win the work, but then manage and do the work. So don't go out, just win the client, throw it over the wall and think someone, you know, someone else is going to do it, right? actually walk through and uh, make sure the, the project is done correctly, delivered on time. And, you know, J Jacobs does the same thing, right? So I compete, friendly competition, right? Our two companies compete all the time. It's always a good race. It's, it's good to have um, good competition. It makes you better. I'll tell you, you know, it's a small world. Yeah. And many times when I'm competing against another firm, there's a pretty good chance that I'm friends with someone on that other side. And the good thing about our industry is collectively, we're trying to raise the bar. So like I said, it's good to push people. So the, the folks of Jacobs or KW Miss Critical or some of these other, other companies we, we compete against, we're all trying to elevate things. We're all trying to make the, the industry better. And that's going to make us sharper. Well, and where your uh, competitors today, your teaming partners tomorrow. So, you know, exactly. the, nobody's burning bridges as long as everybody's competing fairly. Which yeah, we all have very high ethical standards as far as the top tier firms. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's it, it's good. It's it's a uh, good industry to be associated with, and I I enjoy it. And there's there's always the rough days, right? Um, but I've had far far more many better days than uh, than rough days, and it's, it's just a good group of people in in our AEC industry. So, yeah. um, but it, you know, get, getting back to the question, how how did I end up where where I was? You know, I think the one thing that the data center industry needs is we, we need more people in the industry, right? We need more engineers. We need more architects. We need more contractors. We need more trades folks. And there's plenty of opportunities. So if you are someone coming out of school or, or you're looking, you know, if you're a high school student looking to get into college, there are so many opportunities, even outside the engineering firm, right? There's communication, there's business, there's finance. Um, and if if you're just even a little bit kind of um I, I don't want to say aggressive, just proactive, you can you know you can you can move up. My advice to anyone is you, you need two things in your career. You need mentors and you need champions. And so so champions are are those folks within your organization or other organizations that are going to say, hey, Melissa is awesome, right? You need to, to help Melissa. You need to give her this position, give her this project. And I know she's going to do great, right? And then you've got your mentors who have your back, but they're also going to pull you aside and say, you know, Rob, 
you, man, you, you did, you did great on 90% of this, this 10%, you, you got to step it up. You got to do it better. And you need to take that, that feedback and that criticism and turn around and say, yeah, you know what? You're right. Or I, I didn't realize I was making that mistake or, well, I should have, I thought I checked, checked my math on something and I, and I didn't, and I'm glad this guy caught it. And yeah, I should have, should have been better. And they, they push you to be better and they do that because they want you to succeed. So in your career, and I don't care what stage of your career you're at, you find mentors and you find champions and they help you progress. And that's kind of how I've moved throughout my career. And I've, I've been lucky to have some really, really good mentors and, and champions from all the companies I've, that I've worked with. Yeah. Uh, even, even folks with outside those companies have pulled me aside and, and said, Rob, you need to take this opportunity or no, stay where, stay where you're at and keep the path, yeah. keep it going or pay attention to this. And it's, it, it's good. And, and as you grow in your career, I think your responsibility as a, as an emerging leader or someone who, who's in a leadership role is to seek out or, or be, be available to those individuals who are, who need that guidance and pull them aside and, and help them in, in their career. Cause someone, someone helped you moving forward. That's my advice, right? I, I try to break it down to, to the simplest form, find a mentor and find a champion. Well, and that's how your career has been shaped is having those people that have been willing to pull you aside and say, yeah, maybe revisit this, but then also having the people out there cheering you on and cheering you on to others as well. And that's extremely insightful. I haven't had a guest yet in reference to mentorship talk about the need for having champions. And I, that's, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And sometimes the champion is someone who has a little more faith in you than you have in your, in your own self. And they, and they push you outside of your comfort zone. And that's good. You need those. And then the, um, the mentors, uh, when, when your ego gets a little too big and say, I can do everything, they pull you back and say, oh, hold on, kid. <laughs> right. And I've, I've, I've got folks who, um, you know, even at 45 years old, they pull me aside and say, kid, come here. Right? Let me explain something to you. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's good. You, you need that. It's fun. So. And and to someone, you're always going to be a kid, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> always someone and older and wiser. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. That's a good thing. Yeah. So that kind of how I, you know, from a big picture aspect, that's how I ended up where I am. But it's uh, HR is a great firm and lots of opportunities. And um, I think I've found a, a good spot and, and uh, we're, we're doing a lot of good work, a lot of exciting work. I think we're we're helping the industry move forward with efficiency and you know unique solutions and our you know our competition right yeah. of the world they're 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 pushing us to be the best we can and hopefully we're pushing them to to be the best that that they can so fun to go toe to toe with people who are really good at what they do it just makes you it is gotta be what is it smarter better faster <laughs> exactly exactly very so. nice well. We are at the top of the hour, and I believe you have a call with North Korea. Not, not North Korea. No. <laughs> Some kind of place not in the United States. <laughs> uh, over, over, over in uh, Asia Pacific. Yeah. So ah, gotcha, uh, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think the phone's reached North Korea yet. 
Well, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to explain a little bit about the technology side of transportation. And I can't wait to get this interview out and uh, wish you nothing but the best at your adventures with HDR. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Melissa. I, I appreciate it. It was fun. And uh, it, this, this was great. I've, I've never been part of a podcast before. So now I get to check that off the, off the list. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so great to talk to Rob Stye and learn more about the connection between technology and transportation. I'm excited to see what the future holds both for Rob and for our mission critical and data-oriented transportation decision-making. I wish Rob nothing but the best for his future, and I know that he's someone who's going to have a huge impact on how we deliver mission-critical infrastructure and will be a part of leading the conversation around data and transportation. Next up, we'll be talking to Jason Stevens taking a completely different spin on transportation, no pun intended, as we explore the concept and the evolution and really growth of active transportation in Arizona and around the country. Jason is with the Maricopa Association of Governments and has some pretty exciting news to share about what's going on on the regional level. So, I look forward to having you back next time. And until then, let's get moving.